Welcome to CT Startup, an inside perspective on the startup ecosystem in the great state of Connecticut. We have a great interview for you today. My name is Dave Menard, and I'm here with my co-hosts. Michael Kaufman. Eric Francis. And James McLaughlin. Well, today we get to hear from Matt Kremens of Voda Water. Now, actually, in the interview, you might hear us refer to as Secor Water. They had recently changed the company name. But uh, it's a fascinating interview, and it actually raises a few points that we want to discuss as a whole after the interview. So we're going to jump right in today. Uh, I hope you enjoy the interview and we'll be back with you in just a few moments. Hi, this is Dave Bernard with CT Startup. We've got myself, Mike Kaufman, James McLaughlin here today for the interview. The interview is with Matt Kremen, CEO and president of Voda Water. Matt, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about yourself and the company. Yeah, guys, thanks for having me. The way I always introduce Voda is uh, Voda offers you a customizable beverage solution. Uh, so we've developed an amazing new SmartWell product that transforms tap water for your office into any customizable beverage that your employees would like. Great. So when you say tap water, it just plugs into a water line at an office, a gym, or wherever else it may be. Yeah, so we call it bottleless. Um, it, you know, plugs into the water line, takes in tap water, filters it to the quality of bottled water, and then you can add any combination of flavors, uh, vitamins, electrolytes, uh, seltzer, and a sweetener to create the beverage you want. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And which company did you? Uh, I came up with it while I was at UConn. I'm um, a recent, uh, UConn graduate, Go Huskies. <laughs> and I came up with it in a graduate class. Uh, out of the School of Engineering. Uh, the original idea, which was in, let's see, fall of 2012, spring of 2013. And then we've been building it out ever since. And in order to do that, you, uh, you got some help from the uh, Innovation Quest program there. Yep. So after we came up with the idea, uh, I applied to Innovation Quest, which, uh, for those who don't know, is a, a summer business incubator uh, run through the School of Business at UConn. And, uh, we got some funding through, uh, to go through the competition. We were one of the eight teams selected for the summer incubator program. Uh, and I, we basically jump started the business from that point on. The innovation quest program is really great. I, I'd like to stay on that for a moment because mm-hmm. I've had the pleasure of, of seeing the program in action. This year, I know they had over uh, 50 companies apply and it's a, uh, what is it? It's something like a six or seven week process just to get to the initial competition part before they select the teams for the incubator yeah exactly um it's a lot of of preparatory work uh thinking about where you are in your in your stage are you at an idea do you have a prototype do you have a working company um and what expertise you're looking for and uh do you have the vision to, and the drive to go through sort of a, a grueling incubator process <laughs> um and, and really put the time and the effort into to build a business and they bring in a lot of mentors from all sides, uh, marketing and, mm-hmm. and re- UConn grads is, is, as well as, uh, other outside, people from outside of UConn. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're a UConn grad, grad student, undergrad student, you should really definitely check out the Innovation Quest program. 
and if you're listening to this program and you're also interested in finding out what's coming out of UConn, some of the great technologies, an awesome place to look is the Innovation Quest program. So it certainly has, uh, has produced many interesting companies, uh, in all kinds of fields, whether it's health related, bio, as you said, biopharma, we saw mechanical, uh, engineering companies, really pretty fascinating. So Matt, what's your journey been like post UConn? Well, after you get that out of the incubator, I mean, one of the biggest challenges a company faces is like, okay, great. I've learned a lot of information. I've got my idea. I may have started on a prototype. But all of a sudden, the support network's sort of gone. I mean, they, I know the IQ mentors still help out, but what did you do then? Yeah, there's a there's a a few days of uh, sudden shock. <laughs> uh, you're out of the program. What's next? Uh, for us, it was it was go build a go build a functional prototype that you can put in front of customers and and get some feedback. So uh, we did just that. Uh, we applied to the Connecticut Next program mm-hmm. and we applied through the Yukon School of Engineering to the uh, Third Bridge Grant Program, which is uh, through Connecticut Innovations. Uh, we received some grant money from each of them. We used that money to go build a, a functional prototype and then uh, then we began customer testing over the rest of that year. Uh, so we put it in front of several offices, uh, gym environments, Martha Kalina. We've tested at Star Hill Family Athletic Center. We tested at Connecticut Innovations to get some initial user feedback on mm-hmm. uh, what they liked about the, the company and the product, what they didn't like, um, and, and sort of what, what we need to work on uh, when we go into a final product. And so, that, that's an iterative process that took us, you know, takes you several months to complete. So I'm curious. So, you know, you get this grant money and uh, you, you, it's now time to kind of validate that you guys are onto something here. So you build the prototype. How long does this, did you build one prototype or did you build several? How long did you kind of spend in each location? How long was it, was it here in Mirtha? You know, uh, and I'm just curious to the, the process there because that's such a huge step in terms of, you know, taking it to the next level is validating and getting that user feedback. Yeah, absolutely. So we, our product, which we call the smart well, which is the customizable beverage dispensing machine. Is, is unique in that, uh, there's a lot of elements to it, right? You have hardware, you have software, uh, you have electronics, you have consumables, right? You have, you have chemical formulations that people are gonna, gonna drink. Um, so really the, the first key was, was building a great team. We needed a great team of, you know, chemical backgrounds, beverage development, software engineering, electrical engineering, mechanical, um, to all come together and, and pull through on their parts. And, and fortunately, we have an amazing team. Um, and I can't, you know, I, I can say, I can go on for hours about how great our team is, but that's the first step. Um, we built one prototype. Um, and then it was reaching out to your, uh, support system, which I have grown over the past two years for the business and asking them to, uh, be sort of our first pilot customers in the process. And then really, then really the, the challenges, especially for us as engineers was we need to focus on marketing now and getting real customer feedback and doing surveys and asking the right questions and, and talking to people so that you get the feedback you need and not necessarily the feedback that, you know, uh, you want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> how, how did the feedback change the product? <clears throat> Um, we realized a few things. Uh, we realized 
some gaping engineering holes. We realized uh, that we needed to make the process for replacing the additives inside that make mm-hmm. all the drinks uh, extremely, extremely simple to the point where anybody in any office could do it. Um, that was one huge change that we made from our prototype to going to now we're going to the final product. Um, the other thing was we, we took a lot of data on what people drank to understand what was important to offer in, in our product and, and what additives were not popular. Um, so those were sort of key, key feedback items for us mm-hmm. as well as the engineering changes that, you know, what worked and what didn't. I'm just curious, what was the most popular and unpopular additives? Um, seltzer was huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, you know, the, in the marketplace, you sort of see a gravitation towards seltzer as a healthy alternative to soda. Um, and, and we definitely, uh, realized that, uh, that secondhand market research matched well with our data. And then people love the, the lemon and the lime flavors. Uh, Strawberry was the least popular among all the additives. And then the electrolytes and vitamins were very popular in the gym environment. Um, people loved working out. They'd go there. Normally they'd want to, you know, buy a, a two or three dollar Gatorade. Um, and they said, wow, I can get, you know, quality of a Gatorade, but not have to pay three dollars for it and, and have disposable plastic waste. That's a great, va- that's great value for me. And to be clear, when we were, uh, when we had it here at Mirtha, um, you were using a, a stevia uh, as a artificial sweetener, or not artificial? Sorry, it's a natural sweetener. Yeah, natural but, sweetener. but it's calorie free. Mm-hmm. Um, so are you are you still using that? Did that get good reviews? Yeah, it, the original stevia blend we had got mixed reviews. Um, the main reason is just because people aren't used to it. Um, you know, as a culture, we're so we've been using sugar, high fructose corn syrup and, and artificial sweeteners for so long. And, and stevia is sort of new to the marketplace. And we realized that, uh, you know, the, the review to it from a health standpoint was great. People love being more healthy, but if we could improve the taste and couple that with health, it'd be fantastic. So sure. what one at one change we did was we, we sort of reformulated the, the stevia blend, mm-hmm. um, to make it more, you know, tasteful and blending into the beverage better. And now we've gotten much improved reviews on, on the drink taste. So again, it goes, all goes back to the iterative process of, of how this is. Okay. So it is through CT next, technically. So one of the programs that you, you mentioned you went to was the EIA, the Entrepreneur Innovation Awards. And that's a program that's run by Connecticut Innovations, uh, through CT next. So they, um, I'm not going to claim, claim to know the full understanding of it, but they took over CT Next a while ago and, and they started these Entrepreneur Innovation Awards, which is essentially like a pitch contest. You pitch and if you pitch well, you get, you get some feedback, but you can also get, uh, money for it, um, for winning, you know, one of the top prizes of the night. So actually that's where, that's where, uh, Matt and I first met. It was a, a little over a year ago now down in the Bridgeport one. And it was my first trip actually to an EIA, EIA event. And I went down with actually, one of the other CT innovation fellows, uh, from C Click Fix, Andrew Barton Williams. And Matt, you did get my, my votes across the board. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> you are very welcome. Do I have an equity stake in the company for yeah. that? Yeah. Um, so can you, you know, can you tell me your experience with the EIA grant and, uh, you know, going forward with that? 
yeah, so we, you know, we pitched at the event and, uh, we won the, the audience choice. Uh, so we won $12,000 and we used that money to build, uh, the, the prototype that we've been testing with customers now. So, uh, I know that the program's young and I think, uh, they're still working on, on, on sort of how to structure it and how to advance it. Uh, but I think that at least in my experience that, that, amount of money and, and the award we got um, really advanced us forward to finish finish the prototype whereas um, otherwise I, I don't really know how that would have been done mm-hmm. so yeah so after that um, you know so I at this point about a year ago I was basically in the nascent phase I was still kind of head down grinding with development and ten thousand dollars for me uh, if I could have won the crowd twelve thousand dollars would have been huge Um mm-hmm. And I actually applied with a few other, uh, entrepreneurs around the state and, uh, we were pretty, pretty optimistic that we would, we would at least land an opportunity to pitch. Um, none of us got accepted, which is totally fine. Uh, but, you know, we wanted to know why. And we were told, you know, you're going to get some feedback, uh, you know, to how, how to, how to restructure your pitch, everything like that moving forward. And, uh, the feedback was a little bit subpar. Um, Basically, I, I know it's through outside judges that they bring in every time who kind of review and, and choose who comes in. Um, but yeah, I think, I think I haven't, I haven't pitched again or applied to pitch. Um, but you know, the feedback was a little bit, um, bizarre. Uh, it's, you know, have you tested the market? And, and a lot of people who have already launched products, you know, where's your revenue streams? Well, you know, it actually says right there in the pitch deck. So I don't know, you know, like you said, it's still young. They're still kind of figuring it out, but it was, it was, a, it was an odd experience. Uh, it, it seemed, uh, it, in terms of the feedback, it, it seemed a little kind of, uh, mediocre. Well, I think that's emblematic of the state's troubles generally, right? And by the state, I don't necessarily mean CI or, mm-hmm. or the state government, but, but, you know, everybody's trying to figure out how to put money to the best use and, and to try to get entrepreneurs what they need. And CT Next had a program before the EIA where they had vouchers where a company would come in and, and if they met certain requirements, you didn't have to beat other companies out for it. Mm-hmm. You'd have a voucher program. Um, you know, for whatever decision-making process it went through, that program no longer exists. And now we have the EIA, and I understand the EIA is, you know, constantly being looked at. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a struggle to try to figure out how to sponsor entrepreneurship and get it to the right companies. And then what – and then there's the whole question of what's the right company, right? I mean, is it a company that can attract outside funding? Is that what we want? Or is it really any company that's being built up um, – of any type. Does it have to be a tech company or can it be an old fashioned manufacturing company? Can it be a machining company? Yeah, it's, it's very, uh, those are interesting debates. We're just, mm-hmm. you know, that, that we're constantly having in the state and trying to, trying to make sure we get to the right audience. I think that there's a natural tendency to think the right company is your next Google. It's your, it's your tech company, um, that can get outside VC funding and, and can make a, you know, get a billion dollar valuation. But, but there's only going to be so many of those, and there's going to be a lot of everything else. So I don't know. I I agree with you, Mike. I think that you know it, it's an ongoing debate and one that the uh, the state's going to have to fit. But I'm glad that it worked out well for you, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely. Mean, so you so you get the money, you build a prototype, you validate, you you iterate, and now 
you know, you're you're now taking it out of this prototype phase and you're getting ready to launch uh, the 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 alpha product of Smartwell, correct? Yeah. So are you asking me where sort of where we are now? Yeah. Yeah. What's your what's your current status? Okay. Um, so since we've tested with customers, uh, you know, we we essentially demonstrated three things. One that we could build a prototype of our idea to the point where we put it in front of customers. Uh, two that we got customer feedback where uh, the idea, the business idea, and the product idea, oh, the feedback to it was positive, and the changes that need to get made were all chain doable changes. Right, we didn't have to restructure the entire product to do it. And the third thing was for us through doing a lot of research, talking with potential customers on pricing, the business model worked out for us. So now we have a semi-proven business model, a a demonstrable product, and some consumer feedback to support it. And those three things were powerful enough for us to go pitch and raise, I guess we, we call them angel investors, so mm-hmm. small private um, individuals that uh, have invested in the company, taking a small um, equity stake, and that's propelled the company forward to partner with uh, several firms in the state of Connecticut. So we're working with Group 4, uh, engineering design firm in, in Avon, and we're working with Gyre 9, uh, which is in Oxford, Connecticut, which is sort of a product design and manufacturing firm, uh, to take our prototype and go to a final product design, uh, which can be manufactured and eventually be scaled. Um, so that's a whole another process that that has been starting. And you, that money also allowed you to file patent. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So we filed a utility patent uh, on our Smartwell product, and we've also filed uh, a PCT provision uh, to be able to extend the patent uh, beyond just U.S. borders mm-hmm. in the future. And your product is interesting because it has both hardware and software features. So we've talked a lot about the hardware development. Absolutely. How, how are you doing the software? And, and what does the software do? Yeah, so the, the software, there's a few components. Uh, first is the touchscreen, the user interface. So the best way I describe this to people is it's, it's, it's similar to creating an app, right? You're creating a touchscreen that, uh, you know, touchscreen user interface, similarly a tablet, a phone that allows people to customize a beverage, uh, on the, on the device using one screen, multiple screens, however you want to, to design it. And that, flows the control flows over to all the hardware that's on the inside making the drinks um, so it's an extremely extremely important part of the the system uh, and it also is where the users engaging with our product so it's very important to be visually appealing and attractive uh, and then the other side of it is the is the back end of the entire system uh, we call the smart well the smart well because it's smart um, <laughs> and it's able to track uh, you know, drink dispensing and user preferences, which can be used, uh, to, for convenience in the office. So we know when you need to replace your lemon cartridge, your lime cartridge, and we can take data, uh, which is useful for a marketing, you know, market mm-hmm. research perspective. And all that's getting done in house. Um, so we have, uh, you know, two engineers on the team that have been doing software development. Uh, and we're looking to add um, a few interns actually through the Yukon Technology Incubation Program this summer. 
that we're a part of that will be joining the team and doing some software engineering work. So that's all mostly almost all done in house. That's great. And continuing mm-hmm. to support the Yukon connection. Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, we're all of the original team is all from Yukon. And, you know, we, we like to say we're started by Yukon students, run by Yukon students. Uh, and we're, we're very much a grassroots startup company, uh, coming out of the Yukon School of Engineering and School of Business. And we're looking to, you know, continue to, to grow that connection. That's great. And what about <clears throat> one of the factors or, or aspects of the software that, that we discussed before was, was sort of the interconnectedness of it. So the idea that, you, that a user could have an account and go from one smart well in one location to another in a completely separate location and be able to carry over that information. Is that still on the table? Yeah, absolutely. So the vision, right, is for you to go anywhere in the world from your office to your gym to the airport uh, to, you know, a, a country club, co-working space, wherever, and be able to use a smart well and get a healthy, eco-friendly quality drink, right? You're not compromising on being unhealthy. You're not compromising on using a disposable plastic bottle, uh, and you're able to get a good drink. And the way we do that is through the interconnectivity of our smart well machines and you creating a basic user account. So if I'm Dave Menard, I want to go to the smart well machine in Martha Kalina. I simply type in my user ID. It recognizes me. I dispense my drink. I can go to the gym and do the same thing. And then there's ways to integrate payment and and marketing promotions into that as well to give some um some feedback and and some promotions to our our, our loyal users. Now, is there going to be an opportunity <clears throat> for a third party like uh, flavor additives to join in? You know, because right now it's obviously you guys are getting off the ground. It's a closed network. It's all through you guys. But uh, you know, third party get involved, uh, new flavors. Um, you know, is that even on the radar? Yeah. So so right now all of our all of our flavors are manufactured by a company called Charles Bogini Company uh, out in Coventry, Connecticut. So, again, another local Connecticut connection. Uh, and, and we're going to be working with them moving forward, uh, at least for the first few years. Mm-hmm. While we scale, uh, we're going to be making all the products in-house and, and working closely with them. And th- they're amazing. I mean, they, they've already showed us a slew of, of potential new flavors, vitamins, uh, energy supplements, any anything that you can think of, uh, there's the potential to put into the product. But at first, we're going to stick with a basic set of additives mm-hmm. uh, that w- we believe that people will really enjoy. So, Matt, taking a little bit outside of the company and, and getting into the theme of of you know being an entrepreneur in Connecticut, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, absolutely, obviously. One of the great things that you've already mentioned is that you're using other companies in Connecticut. It really, and you're using UConn students, uh, and, and you're, you know, you're still in contact with, with all the, the groups that you've worked with, uh, from IQ and, and going forward. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is one of the good things about being Connecticut? How has being Connecticut helped you? Yeah, the first, the, the UConn network's been huge. Um, there's a ton of resources there and there's a ton of people that care about seeing entrepreneurs in Connecticut succeed and UConn students succeed. Um, so I've gotten a ton of, you know, not just, not just grants and, and money. I've gotten mentorship, uh, you know, coaching, um, 
market marketing resources. We did a ton of market research through the uh, the Yukon School of Business down Stanford. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- that's been a, that's been a great help. Um, and then obviously the, the the various state initiatives that are going on have have been have been helpful to us. Um, and I think the second part of your question, correct me if I'm wrong, is sort of how where do I see it going or sure the go yeah. run with it. Yeah. So, uh, it's, it's hard to be an entrepreneur in Connecticut because, uh, it's harder to find the resources than in a bigger city like Boston or New York, right? And, and and that's the reality, right? That's Mm -hmm. the reality is, is in a, you know, in those type of city, there's a lot more resources available, but, but I, I truly want to be an entrepreneur in Connecticut. And I, you know, and a lot of people ask me all the time, will you move to Boston? Will you move to New York? And my answer is, I, I, I really want to stay in, in Connecticut. Um, because I, w- I want to believe and I do believe and I've met a lot of people who believe that we can build Hartford. We can build Connecticut, uh, to be a hub of entrepreneurship. Um, and the way to do that is, is in my mind is to partner with, partner with companies in Connecticut, uh, to help you grow your business to where more people have a, have a stake. Um, you know, that was, that was one of my key goals was, you know, almost all the partnerships we want to make are in Connecticut because then that's one, that's one more group that has been introduced to entrepreneurship in the Mm -hmm. state has realized that there's people with good ideas and, and now they're getting involved. So for example, you know, you know, companies like, Group four, Gyre Nine, they're always looking for different projects to do. And if they realize that there's entrepreneurs with great ideas, they'll partner with them uh, in the future, assuming that, you know, we're going to have a great success with our company, right? Um, so there's that. I think that's a key element. Um, I also think that um, the state and, and various, the, the companies, uh, or not companies, organizations are, are, are trying to do a lot. Um, and, and they will continue to improve on, on what they've done so far. Um, but the last, the last component of building this up is, is we have to find those, those private networks of people that are willing to, to invest. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the key advantages to a place like Boston, New York is there's a lot of private investors that get excited about funding new companies. And I believe they exist in Connecticut. And it's a, it's a combination of, uh, marketing the companies well, um, getting the information out there and then, uh, people believing that you can grow businesses in the state of Connecticut, so they want to invest in them. Um, so it's sort of a three pillar thing in my mind. I mean, certainly one of the goals of this podcast is to help make people aware of what companies are out there, and and to provide more connectedness between the different uh, types of entities and groups and companies in Connecticut. Uh, you know, it, I think it's the number one refrain um, that that I think we've all heard individually and on the podcast is how difficult it is to get financing in Connecticut. Yeah, um, and which is funny for one of the richest states in the nation. Um, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, so you're right. There, there's definitely uh, opportunities out there. Um, it's a way of trying to make the environment very friendly to both investors uh, and to and to encourage more and more companies to be formed and be created here and stay here. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's many things. It's, it's laws. It's, um, I, I'm really for the angel investor tax incentive that mm-hmm. the state has been pushing and continuing to push to encourage people to invest in, in startup companies. Um, cause it's tough. There's a lot of people with great ideas. 
they want to find funding. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, state and public organizational run programs. Uh, and, but there's only so much of that money out there. Uh, yeah. there needs to be that balance of, uh, find a few partners that are willing to take a risk with you. Find a few private people that are willing to invest in you and then find some public sources that will support you as an entrepreneur. Right. And, and if you do that, then you can, you can make it happen. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's actually stay on this topic for another second because <clears throat> there's a lot of, there's a lot of startups around Connecticut that are trying to raise money right now and trying to, you know, be a part of the entrepreneurial ecosystem within Connecticut. Uh, but they're being deterred. Uh, they're being, you know, pushed to New York and Boston to raise the money. And usually what happens is you raise the money in one of these cities and that individual, those angels or, or VCs for that matter, will want you to now migrate, uh, to, yeah, absolutely. Now, to that area. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us about your process of raising money around Connecticut? Uh, what were some of your struggles and, uh, any advice for any entrepreneurs listening? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the biggest thing for me was the realization that uh, raising money is selling, right? And it's it's the hard truth that whether you're selling a product or – but really, you're you're selling an idea, right, which is very hard to do. Uh, you know, for example, you have you have your, your iPhone next to you, right? If I put my the iPhone in front of you and I show you all the amazing features and then I tell you to, 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 to buy the iPhone – uh, you, you're probably going to buy the iPhone, right? But if I if I put a piece of paper and and a, some words in front of you, and I say this is a new, you know, type of phone that uh, has a touch screen that has never you know been seen before, that you're going to be able to have you know software on it and send emails from, and you know there's going to be apps and all these other features that I haven't even thought of yet, but they're on my business plan and. And trust me, I'll get to it. I mean, that's a lot harder, harder proposition. And, and, um, for me, it was, it's been nothing else but tireless days and nights going out and pitching to people. I must have pitched to over a hundred people the idea. And, and it's just like selling the old sales funnel where you get a, you get a hundred leads, you get 10, 10 meetings, you get two second meetings and you get one, you know, one hit. Uh, it's the same, same idea. Mm hmm. Um, and you have to find the people that care about you and care about your idea. And that's hard. I mean, it, that's hard, harder in Connecticut because not a lot of people, uh, advertise, right? In, in New York City, you mentioned New York City and Boston. Mm -hmm. Uh, you, there's a lot of accelerators, right? And, and they advertise and they take hundreds of companies a year. Right. And, and, and there's no, there's not a lot of those type of programs in Connecticut. Uh, and I think that's one possible way to, to help and improve. Mm -hmm. Matt, have you, have you recognized or identified any advantages to doing business in Connecticut as a startup? Um, thinking, thinking, uh, from the point of view of an entrepreneur who doesn't have the same personal connection to the state, uh, doesn't have the same, um, you know, separate goal of, 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 of fostering a startup network, a startup ecosystem within the state. Uh, any advantages maybe of being, uh, one startup out of a smaller pool in the state as, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, what are, what are much larger pools of, of, of startup businesses in New York and Boston? Yeah, that's what I was going to say is, you know, the, where you potentially have the disadvantages of not as much resources, you have the advantage of if you're willing to put in the work, 
uh, and grow your business here, there's a lot of people that will root for you and support you. Whereas I've never, I've never built a business or, or started anything in New York City, but there's, you know, thousands of businesses there, startups, and it's hard to be a, an exciting one among the thousands mm -hmm. of them. Um, so that, that there's some merit to that, I, I, I think. So it's interesting. I mean, I mean, we were saying earlier that one of our, one of our issues here in Connecticut is building the community. But I think what we're also saying is the community we do have is very supportive. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's one of the great things that I've, uh, I've learned or been, uh, really happy to participate in over the past few years is to, uh, you know, is, is to really be a member of the community here in Connecticut and see how tight they are. And, and it's amazing how, uh, in some ways, how small it is. Um, I mean, uh, before today, to give a little bit of inside baseball, I guess, uh, you know, Matt and Mike were talking and, and Mike realized that he had seen Matt, uh, you know, a couple <laughs> years ago at a yeah. presentation. Um, and there's an awful lot of, there's an awful lot of those types of things that go on. Yeah. I mean, you know, just to attest to that, you know, it is a small state and, you know, there aren't many entrepreneurs here and the ones that are here, you know, we do stick together. And, you know, as Matt said, there's a lot of people rooting for you and, and in your corner if you are willing to stay and, you know, uh, tough it out at, at the beginning because, um, you know, it, it is a struggle getting it off the ground. But, you know, there is a point where the rubber hits the road. And it sounds like, Matt, you, you've 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 gotten to that point. Uh, well, for me, it's when we start selling, but we're, we're almost there. <laughs> it's the small uh, victories, man. Small victories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> It's, it's amazing though. And, and I've, so I've seen, you know, I've worked with the IQ, uh, the Innovation Quest, uh, incubator for a while. And, uh, and I saw Matt when he did his first presentation, when he came up, after he came up with the idea. And to see where he is now, that he's gone through, um, you know, the, 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 the he's gone through the whole process, the, 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 the idea, the development, the struggles and, and on the verge of actually having a product out to market. A dream realized that went into effect three years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's a really gorgeous thing to see, um, and 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 it always it, I always get a warm fuzzy from it, and uh, <laughs> it, and it always thanks Dave. It, it always makes me feel good. So so Matt, I mean, what a what what a great thing for you to to have done what you've done, and and uh, you know I thank you thank you for coming on here because you know hopefully other people will be inspired by what you're doing. So how can people follow Smartwell? How, how can people be in touch with you and, and, and kind of track your progress and, uh, and your launch? Yeah. So our, our website's going to be launching in about two months, uh, www.drinkvota.com. Uh, and with that, we'll be launching all, uh, social media and newsletters. Uh, if you're interested in getting in touch with me directly, uh, my email is Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W dot Kremins, C-R-E-M-I-N-S at gmail.com or matt.kremens at drinkvoted.com. And uh, I'll be happy to, to talk to you more about it, but for now, and then, like I said, everything will be launching in a few months, uh, and we'll be at the Hartford Business Expo uh, on June 4th, uh, right in the Connecticut Convention Center. So, again, we're, we're bringing the product to Hartford. And uh, just to be clear, since we don't know exactly when this particular uh, episode will come out, uh, some of these things may be in front of you, like the launch of the website, which would probably be uh, late June, early July. Yep, absolutely. Um, and then some of these things uh, may, may have already happened, but we encourage you to check out Matt to begin with. 
Before we uh, wrap it up, Matt, one thing I always like to ask is if you have a message for the other entrepreneurs in Connecticut, just a, a few lines of, of some pearl of wisdom you'd like to drop on them, what would it be? I would say, uh, you know, there's not, there's no, uh, there's no shortcuts to hard work. Um, you have to be willing to work very hard. You have to be very passionate about what you're doing. Um, to give some reference to that, uh, I, I turned down three job opportunities, uh, coming out of grad school to keep the business going when we're not making any money and we had no investments. Um, so there's going to be points where you have to make tough decisions and persevere. And I, I encourage you to do that. Um, and I also encourage you to reach out because the whole, you know, we talked about the really supportive community here in Connecticut for entrepreneurs who are willing to put in the work. It's very true. It's absolutely true. So reach out to mentors, uh, advisors, people that are looking to partner with you and help, uh, cause that's how we grow the, the community. It's not, it's not an isolation, uh, that you're going to succeed. It's by reaching out to the people who want to help you. And actually, I, I don't want to extend this too much longer, but just to mm-hmm. point out, now you've actually not only turned down jobs, but you've had, you've lost people along the way from your team who, uh, who were in the same position. They, they needed money and, and they just had to get jobs. And sometimes they worked with you for a while while they had a job. And, but some people went off in different directions. Yeah, it's very tough. I mean, it's, it's the reality of life. Everyone's in, in different, uh, life positions. Everyone's in different financial positions. Uh, and I, I don't fault anyone for making one decision one way or another, because at the end of the day, that's your personal life. Uh, but, but it does take a ton of sacrifice. And, and sometimes one of those sacrifices is jobs and, and personal life. So, and <clears throat> maybe we got time for one more question. Sure. We, could, we could use it or not, but I just kind of yeah. indulge my curiosity. You know, Dave mm-hmm. mentioned before that, um, you know, maybe you didn't, you, your being uh, on the podcast would inspire other entrepreneurs, but to kind of turn that question around, who, who are some individuals or books you've read or, or just ideas that have that have inspired you and, and, and that you've felt have guided you in, in your own uh, process? Yeah, I, I can reference two uh, for you. So the first, uh, going off of the tech side of me, is I'm a big uh, Elon Musk fan. And, uh, you know, for those of you who don't know, Tesla, SpaceX – and he had a great interview a few months ago that I that I listened to, actually a podcast. Um, and they asked him, you know, in the early days of uh, PayPal when he started it up, how did he live? Because they had no, they had very little funding until they launched the software and then they raised uh, some valued rounds. And he said that, uh, you know, he, he calculated it out to the point, to the penny, uh, how much he needed to live every day. And he bought... He bought green peppers and hot dogs and ketchup and ate that every day. And it totaled about 20 something cents, right? 24 cents. And that's how he calculated how he could live. And, and he actually calculated out how many days he could go on that before either he'd, he'd run out of money or he'd be sick, right? He'd get food poisoning. <laughs> and it came out to a few months, but I, but I love that. I love that. And that's sort of my inspiration for how, how hard I, I want to work on, on my business. Um, the other one is, is John Wooden. So I'm going to give a shout out. I'm a, I'm a member of Beta Theta Pi fraternity and, and our motto is, is men of principle. And I was a, a member of the Zeta Chi chapter. And, and John Wooden is an alumni of, of, uh, Beta Theta Pi fraternity and the coach of UCLA. And I read his book that he wrote on, on coaching and, and, and 
managing a team, being a team player, and sort of life lessons. And I always use that uh, to, you know, when I work with the team, when I work with other people, how I how I sort of guide my life. Uh, and, uh, you know, I always look back on that book as sort of a, am I, you know, where am I right now in my life and am I doing the right thing? So I would recommend reading uh, John Wooden's book. Uh, you know, it's sort of a, I use that as my guide as I, how I do business and how I live. So, Great. We'll make sure to put a link to that in the show notes. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Matt. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the interview. We certainly did. Gentlemen, so what did you think of Vote of Water? Well, well, I'm going to start off by saying thank you for inviting me to the, uh, to the interview because obviously we had a meeting and I walked in and you guys were like, Oh, we just recorded. So I appreciate it. You know, <laughs> now to be fair, I had the interview scheduled and it just so happened that James was in the building and Mike walked in early. So he got invited in and we just didn't tell you. Yeah. The excuses. It's okay. It's okay. I can deal with it. This is super yeah. awkward right now. <laughs> no, but I, I thought, I thought it was actually pretty uh, cool because I've uh, been hearing of Sakura water. So this is my first time, you know, knowing or after the interview knowing that they changed their their name to voda um but i heard a lot about them you know and it was uh it was definitely cool to uh kind of hear their story obviously they, they've gotten they've gotten a lot of the, out of the ecosystem in connecticut yeah they have i i so i go back with with matt kremens uh a few years so i first met him uh when he was applying for the innovation quest uh incubator and award that's done at yukon and he was yukon engineering student uh, he had a, there was, he had his, uh, partner in the company back then. Um, and, uh, as Matt said during the interview, uh, that partner wasn't able to stay with the company because his life, uh, circumstances changed. But still, Matt's one of those guys that, you know, we always talk about, there's a zillion ideas out there and there aren't as many people that can carry them out. Right. I mean, it's hard to find a good idea, but I think in many ways it's almost harder to find a person that has that certain passion or energy and drive that can really take it to the next level. So, Matt is one of those people. He, he, you know, he, he won the, uh, the incubator award that year. Um, he has constantly pursued the idea. He's given up many job opportunities to make it happen. He has not stopped at any particular point. He's, even when he's only been able to make baby steps, he's continually made it. And now he's at the point where he's receiving, you know, significant offers of, of VC money for, to, to, for people to participate because he is ready to go into the market and he has his sites all lined up. He has people ready to do the leases. He's going to produce these machines and they're on their third, uh, third iteration by now, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. I mean, he's gone through the whole product testing process and I've seen each of the machines and they've got in the, the first one looked like a normal vending machine. They had gutted it and replaced it. And the second one looked pretty nice and, um, it was okay, but it, but it's, it wasn't really refined at all and it had loose edges and all those. This new one has bamboo paneling and was just featured at, uh, the Connecticut Business Expo. Um, and we received a lot of good, uh, feedback. And it's really just a, it's really just an amazing process to really see this company take off. So anyways, uh, I was really thrilled to see someone who has that kind of drive, uh, move forward and succeed. And I believe that his company will take off and do well. Yeah. And I will have to say is that it's not surprising to find out that strawberry is the worst flavor. 
because <laughs> every strawberry drink I've ever had, like, you know, like water or, you know, Gatorade or something like that, it's gross. It's absolutely gross. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess to that point real quick, I, I did buy a strawberry probiotic the other day. It was a chewable. Yeah, that didn't go over well. So I'm not eating <laughs> or taking any probiotic anymore. But I, I do think I, I actually didn't get a chance to see the the newest design with the bamboo siding. Um, could you actually pull that up for yeah, us? Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I, I actually met um, I met uh, I met him a while back at one of the CT Next pitches. He actually got my vote for uh, crowd favorite, um, and I I mean it's just amazing to see how far he came in. When was that? Maybe uh, about a year ago. Um, so there's definitely, like you said, there's definitely a drive, and that's what we like to see. Now, Matt actually won money at that pitch, right? Yeah. Yes, he did. And, and that's one of the great things. So we always discuss how hard it is for a company to get financing. And what Matt has done has has been always incremental. So he he first got his, his first money as winning one of the Innovation Quest awards. He took that money to start the company and build it up and start, he made his first prototype for something less than 2000 or $3,000. It was really just a proof of concept. They bought an empty vending machine, gutted it, bought the pieces, put it together. And, you know, he's participated in various competitions to win 5000 here or 10000 there. And then he's also gotten money from friends and family. And now he's at an investor level. And he's really sort of the traditional path of, of, of doing whatever you can with what you have and just keep it moving. And he's has, he has a team now of, of I think three full-time people and, and maybe five part-time. Uh, he's had five full-time people at various times. Sometimes it's just been him. Sometimes it was just him and, and the first partner in the company. So it, it's, you know, really again, pushing through that sense of adversity. Yeah. We, we talk about momentum a lot and, uh, we were just talking, um, about Oculus and how, you know, they were, 18 months from their Kickstarter campaign to getting acquired by Facebook. And, and, and that's really kind of an anomaly. Um, usually the idea is just to keep forward progress going, even in small incremental steps. Um, so long as you're moving forward, uh, you're in good shape. Yeah, no. And, and <clears throat> I guess one of the things too is that when you're starting out and the EIA, right? He won the money from the EIA and that actually propelled him. So, I don't know if I if I heard the podcast or the interview right, but is that did he um, look at it? Um, did he use the the EIA money for the first prototype, or is that the second? The, was that the second kind of pro- product? That was the second product. That was the second product. Yeah. So was that was that machine in this Mirtha Kleina or the one down in? You no, know, he he. We uh, had it in here for a month to pro- to product test it. And yep. That was the second one. Um, I know he was also at uh, an accounting firm, yeah. um, and uh, as well as a gym, and I think another office environment. So, what did you guys think about about it? I mean, did you did you use it a lot? Was it something where I mean, did you keep forgetting your water bottle because I know it's bottle <laughs> bottleless? <laughs> it actually went over pretty well. Uh, a good number of our employees tried it at least once. Um, we also had it right next to the water machine, and and Matt had kept a person here most of the time. So, if anybody had questions, and also just to see how people reacted, right. So, so often, um, and the person would be unobtrusive. Oh, he wasn't um, just like standing over. No, no. Just... <laughs> usually, usually the person would actually be outside of that room in an office nearby. Yeah. But, but the, the idea was we wanted to track usage. And so we'd find out how many people would just go straight to the voter machine instead of going to the water machine. <clears throat> and then the last part of the trial, like the last week or something, they actually put sort of, I, I believe they turned on like the pricing. So before everything was free to try. And then it was 10 cents an add-on, mm-hmm. right? So your basic hot or cold water is free, but then your, uh, 
your seltzer, your flavors, yeah. uh, your vitamins, minerals, all that's like yeah. 10 cents per add-on thing. And then they, you know, tested to see how that went over and, and what people were purchasing then. Uh, so it, it was a, it was a successful test. He got a lot of users. Uh, I enjoyed it. My personal thought at the time was, A, I'm not a, a Stevia fan for, as a sweetener. Okay. Um, but they've, they've worked on changing the balances of those. I'm not even sure they're still using Stevia, but either way, it was worked with that feedback. And the other thing was that the seltzer wasn't quite carbonated enough for my taste. Yeah. That's an easy fix. Uh, the big problem that they had, interestingly enough, <clears throat> were the nozzles, right? You, you tend to have. Cause they like gunked up or something. Or? Well, they have, uh, if, if, if somebody orders orange and then the orange comes okay, out, yep. then the next person orders strawberry, their strawberries can taste partially like strawberry and partially like orange. Hmm. Because, you know, there, there'd always be a little bit of residue from the previous yeah. thing. And they've developed new technology to get around that. And that's actually, uh, patentable. Oh, well, that's cool. Well, so, yeah. so they've really done well. I, I thought that problem, you know, based on my usage of it and, and talking to other people around the office, uh, was, was, was the biggest complaint. So to hear that they've solved that is, is really encouraging. You know, my own experience was that the, the user interface was very easy to use. You know, it's, it's a touch screen and, and software, uh, which I think is also really helpful and, and good for the product. You know, you can update the software, you can keep track of all the usage data. Um, you know, maybe even talking about people being able to customize their drinks and have it kind of assigned to their, their user ID so the, it, it's just kind of ready to go when they go and order the drink. Uh, so I think that's one aspect of this machine which really sets it apart from, from any other machine that I've seen or heard of. I, I also just got a chance to actually see it on, on Dave's phone, uh, the newest version and, Holy crap, it's aesthetically pleasing. You wouldn't think like something like that, it would be so good looking. You know, if I saw this next to, you know, a Poland spring, you know, water dispenser cooler, it's a no brainer that draws you in. Uh, and there's that display screen, which I'm sure they could utilize in tons of different ways to drive some traffic over to it. Um, so I mean, I, I, they've come a hell of a long way since I saw them at, uh, since I saw the original product at, uh, CT Next. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, <they're> <laughs> I, I, I think that should be one of the drinks. Matt, if you're listening, uh, let's give me a Dave. An extra uh, carbonated orange, is that? What would your drink be, Dave? What would the Dave be? Well, it certainly have extra carbonation, that's for okay. certain. I, extra bubbly. Know, I, I don't know that it would be sweet, right? I don't know that I'm a sweet person. Sweet enough, Bla- Dave. Black cherry? Uh, Maybe a cola kind of thing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Go classic, classic okay. cola. That's right. That's right. An oldie book goodie. That's cool. Never goes out of style. Um, I actually love that idea of how like they could basically figure out which are the most popular um, flavor combinations and additives uh-huh. and actually promote them. So it's That's this right. way to actually – you can create your own creation, but to some degree, you know – that might establish itself as like the most popular drink in your workplace and uh, could be a flagship yeah. for, for the machine. And think again, think about how changeable it is, right? So they can update the software remotely anytime. Yeah. And if they want to change the flavors out, they just send out a new cartridge with a new flavor, update the software, and it's already built into the system. And if they want, if people want something else from the system, if they discover something entirely new, it's easy, you know, it's easy again to fix. It's also easy to change and aggregate data. Yeah. So. Well, that's uh, the good, that's the big yeah. thing, right? The big, the internet of things. And this is this exactly is just another thing that you can tap into. I would, I would think that, uh, actually two things kind of popped into my head was that I could like the mini bar in, in a hotel room. 
right? This is this is can almost like take away the mini bar if you think like because you you know you don't have orange juice anymore, you don't have soda in there, you don't have all this kind of stuff, and people are still mm-hmm. paying for it. And then it actually would be better if you had your own <laughs> mixers. You know, it'd be a great mixer machine. You know, it, it actually probably would be a fantastic mixer <laughs> machine. Um, now that they've got powdered alcohol, it could be that's, yeah, that's a, right. whole, a full service machine. <laughs> yeah, that's oh. it. you're not drinking that. <laughs> well, it gets added in. Actually, I'd love to see it as a as a mini bar in a hotel. You know, each add on would be five dollars. Like, <laughs> carbonation, five dollars. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And I, I was I was thinking too is that I'm definitely the type when you get to like a a soda machine that has them all, especially the new Coke machines where you can I mean every single freaking flavor you can get. Yeah, it's just like you're just mixing and mixing and mixing. So I'd probably be at the machine doing carbonation. Well, I'll take orange and let's probably try this and that and. I mean, probably tastes gross, but one of, one of the mixtures will taste delicious. A Franken drink, basically. Exactly. We're gonna call yeah. it the Francis. Well, and, and the it could, Francis. <laughs> that's fair. And, and we actually, and the interesting thing is, it could have suggestions, right? You pop up. We noticed that you always drink orange and carbonation. You know, have you tried the Francis? Yeah, consisting exactly. of this and yeah. and uh, provide uh, <laughs> yeah. suggestion. You like that, Mike? <laughs> I just based on how Eric just described what the Francis is, it sounds like. <laughs> There may be some very sick people running around after they <laughs> yeah, yeah, they yeah. indulge. Yeah. So so one thing that uh, that kind of um, interests me about uh, his team was that this product, right? I mean, you need a lot of different kind of skill sets to really get this product right. I mean, he was talking about the engineering side of it, the software development, the industrial design to make it look nice. I mean. There, I mean, is that all in house for him? Or I know he said he'd been working with a couple of companies in Connecticut that he was kind of outsourcing. I know one of the flavoring companies that was out of Windsor, right? Uh, was that yep. Windsor? So, um, so, so I, I think that's interesting because, right, a, a robust startup team has many different facets and many different skill sets that can, you know, lend to the, lend to the project. And that, that, that's kind of related to something that I wanted to bring up was that he, you know, in, in, Designing and building, you know, his first prototype and then, you know, each iteration after that. He's using local design firms within Connecticut or, or maybe Southern Massachusetts as well. I, I forget, but, uh, you know, we've been kind of down on the state of Connecticut recently, uh, in, in some of our discussions earlier, but I think, you know, that kind of highlights one of the real assets that Connecticut has is a large manufacturing base. I mean, a lot of the Connecticut economy is based on manufacturing. So you've got a lot of, uh, you know, resources within the state locally that you can, that you can use to, to build a really, you know, bespoke machine, something that, that no one's really probably used to designing. And Matt's absolutely committed to Connecticut. I mean, that was his thing from the beginning was, I want this to be as local as possible. I went to Yukon. I want this to be a Connecticut company. And he's committed to staying here, even though, frankly, he's probably had better financing offers elsewhere. Um, and so it, it's been important to him and it's refreshing to see that. Uh, it's good that a company like his can survive here. He did go up to New Hampshire for one design firm earlier on. Um, but that was, that was, I think, uh, either in the original alpha model or, or the first beta. And then he, uh, but yes, he's using con- two Connecticut design firms. He has a lot of, uh, he's doing the software development stuff in house with, with, uh, Yukon grads who work with him. Yeah. Um, and some of it is as with all entrepreneurs stuff that he's had to learn. I mean, he did not go to a business school. He has not, you know, had previous business experience and he's learning that as he goes on. And he's had to learn this industry. Mm-hmm. He's really had to learn to work as, as you noted, Eric, with, with developers. Yeah. Um, uh, sorry, developers with distributors. Yep. 
um, and with, uh, you know, with other people in the beverage industry and to figure out how it works and then how to get the product out there. And I mean, that's a crazy industry. I mean, there, I mean, <laughs> I mean, Mike, you tried to start a drink, uh, in Boston and it's yeah. probably one thing where there is a lot that you can, um, get yourself in trouble with. You know, if you, <laughs> you know, you can, you can go down some paths where it just doesn't make sense. So. Yeah. It was a, it was a crazy ride. Uh, and I, I met a lot of successful entrepreneurs that started multiple, beverage companies which were acquired by big companies uh like pepsi and coca-cola and even talking to these guys who have had massive success and they try to do it again and replicate and you'd obviously you know you, you understand that they know the industry through and through but um you know even they uh fall on their face time and time again with massive investment great product it's a really difficult industry to say the least yeah. um some even compare it to hollywood <laughs> that's that's not my words uh but yeah uh but listen it, it was a fun ride and learned a lot and you know got me to where i am now sitting around a table with you three guys <laughs> <laughs> you <sound> congratulations so <laughs> yeah. you you won you won the big one <laughs> sounds like hollywood yeah. <laughs> it's like hollywood uh yeah i gotta go to my yeah uh but yeah so in terms of in terms of getting into the beverage industry though i think he is coming at it from a totally different angle and uh you know that opens up huge opportunities to him uh but also there's some challenges along the way but i think you know as we know he is a his great product and a, a strong team and that combination um is it's 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 a powerful thing yeah. well frankly it's an industry that needs some innovation in it right i mm -hmm. mean what's the newest thing is the coke freestyle machines that's that's about the the, yeah. the newest innovation is that what they call them the freestyle machine yeah i believe I think so, called... yeah and they've been around for they actually have been around for a yeah. while that was my nickname know? on the swim team by the way <laughs> freestyle <laughs> freestyle machine that's right <laughs> um but i think one of the really cool things about it and you know just it solves a particular problem. I know that at the last office I worked at, you, we had a soda fountain with eight different flavors. And when they wanted to change up the flavors, you know, I, I haven't seen people take such interest in a topic in an office uh, ever. <laughs> I mean, it was it was a pitched battle between, you know, what was going out and what was going to come in. And I know, you know, even here, talking to our uh, the head of our office here, uh, the facilities manager, that, you know, we've got six flavors of coffee and a couple types of tea. Uh, and when you change that out, uh, you really, I guess, catch the wrath of people who used that particular product that's been discontinued. So to have a, to, so to have, you know, one station where you've got a lot of different variety, I mean, that, that's always a good problem for his, you know, kind of target market. That's right. And you have the statistics to back it up when you change something out. Like, <laughs> yes, you are the only person who uses this. Yeah. You two people, I'm sorry, but this is for the greater good. Dave, yeah. you're the only one that ordered the Dave and Eric, you're the only one that got the Francis. Yeah, we have to get rid of yeah. it. We gave those formulas to our competitors. For the love yeah. of God, we've lost five employees to the Francis. We, we can't it. afford it anymore. <laughs> hey, it could happen. You know? There's always risk. There's always no, no. Risk. Give it, give it a couple more weeks. It's a groundswell. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I did want to take this back a step. So one of the things that we talked about in our discussion with uh, Matt was uh, the CT Next Entrepreneur Innovation Awards, the EIAs. And uh, I recently had an opportunity to judge an EIA event. And we've discussed this on the podcast before. I've discussed it uh, with Mike. And it was actually fascinating being involved. So uh, for those who aren't aware, CT Next was founded, uh, quasi governmental, uh, group, or I don't want to say agency, but, uh, but project maybe. It was founded maybe three years ago, four years ago. 
and had the goal of making entrepreneurship an accessible, uh, an accessible uh, activity in Connecticut, meaning that if you were an entrepreneur, no matter where you came from, no matter what age you were, um, there wasn't any bias whatsoever. You could just call this one place. They would put you in touch with resources in your area. They had what they called hubs. So Hartford was a hub and Stamford and, and New Haven were all hubs. And, and they would put you in touch with a growth advisor and, and as long as well as with some other people who could help you define your business plan, help you really learn how to build a business. And what they did is on occasion, um, everybody would be eligible, though wouldn't necessarily receive a $10,000, um, sort of grant. Now you couldn't do anything you wanted with the grant. It was really a voucher program and you could take that voucher and use it for certain services. So if you needed legal help or accounting help or if you needed, uh, to, to get some manufacturing going or something like that, you could use it for that. And the way they decided who got the grant and, and I might have this slightly wrong, but I believe the way it was decided was that, Every company basically had a, you know, was assessed by the growth advisor for the hub or someone else who worked for that hub. And then they, and then they said, okay, I think this person is worthy. This would be good use of the money. And they'll take it to a central committee at CTNX who would then decide. And, you know, one, a few things that CTNX did really well was A, it, it did provide some money to companies and it was hard to measure the impact of that money because it's not, it's not like VC money where, where you, you know, there's somebody still involved on the company's board and you're tracking the growth and everything. Um, and not all these, all these companies are startups. So they're, they're, they're pre-financing startups. So you, you, you're not sure. It's hard to really document how many succeed, how many fail, so on. Um, and then there's sort of the internal politics of Connecticut. The CTNX was eventually taken over by Connecticut Innovations, whereas more of a project of the DECD. And uh, at that point, Connecticut Innovations, which was more of a venture organization, um, started changing the way CTNX work. Um, and, and I think my own viewpoint is they probably saw it as a competitor, though it really wasn't. They're working in two different areas. CTNX is for that pre-seed level and mm-hmm. CI is really a, a for a higher level company. But but now, um, you know, there's been changes at CI and they've got the DCD back in a little bit working with CTNX. I know they brought in an advisor from the DCD. And so they're trying to change how it works. But it's been a subject of some controversy in the entrepreneur community here in Connecticut. Um, and Matt was a, a benefit of the EIAs. Um, but, uh, but we had this conversation because as Mike mentioned during, uh, his chance, he was also applying for an EIA award and, uh, and did not get it. And and I don't mean that in a bad way because they have a lot of applicants and such. But Mike, what were your issues when you went to the EIA? Uh, so at the time, I was actually um, one of the uh, CT Innovation Fellows at C Click Fix, and we heard about the EIA. I actually heard about the EIA from another fellow there, um, and we went ahead and applied. Um, and basically, you know, we didn't really have our our our. our, our we went in open-minded, not knowing, you know, what the competition was looking like. Um, and we were told regardless, we'd get some really great feedback and we could apply again. So, you know, nothing wrong with that. Uh, went ahead, uh, applied, jumped through a couple hurdles and, uh, you know, neither of us, uh, myself or, uh, the other individual, Andrew, uh, made the cut, which is, which is a okay. And, uh, so we check our email, go for the feedback. And it, I think this is what really bothered us was the feedback that we got. Um, it was, it was as if they didn't even read our applications, um, or the presentations that we attached. Uh, mine was, you know, do you have a functional MVP? And I had a link right to 
the uh, App Store showing our MVP. This other individual who had a um, a website that was live and and customers and uh, a little bit of revenue, they asked him if he tested the market. Um, so obviously, both of those the answers were basically right there in front of in front of him. So um, you know, I guess that's really where the the issue came from, and then. I suppose the other issue here is that these this $10,000 is for companies that are pre-revenue, where that $10,000 can go a long way for a startup. And I think when I went to the first EIA, I saw some companies that were, you know, light years ahead of a lot of these other startups applying. Um, regardless of, uh, you know, the quality of the idea or team, it was just they were at a far different stage Um in, in kind of the lifespan of their company. And it didn't seem appropriate that the 10,000 was being given to them based on what CT Next was, uh, claiming that the money was for. Um, but having said that, uh, you just judged and I took a look at some of the companies that were awarded the $10,000. And I do know that they've gone through a lot of changes recently. And I think those changes are really starting to, to, to come to 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 light uh, based on a lot of these companies that won because about six months ago, I don't know if a few of them would have. Yeah. So I, again, I can't speak to any experiences other than the one that I had. Mm-hmm. So I don't know where they were. And and I will, you know, and I obviously won't discuss uh, the judging, you know, what went on in, in judging room and so on. But I, I can say a few things. First of all, is that my, my view of, of CT next was probably a little bit harsh because I was heavily involved in the original CT next. I, I did not, was not involved since CI took it over. Um, and, uh, in the original CTNX, I felt spurred a ton of innovation, uh, here in Connecticut. It, it really spurred a lot of people to come out of the woodwork. And I've seen more activity in the entrepreneur community since CTNX was created than I had ever seen prior to that. And, and I feel like CTNX was the, you know, the, the, uh, it got the, it got the whole ball rolling. In many respects. Now, there were, there were a lot of people who would probably be insulted by this because there was certainly a startup community before CT Next and they were very active in it. And, and I'm sorry that I said that to them, but, but, you know, this is just what I saw. And, and so I really appreciated what was there. And so when it changed, it was, it was difficult for me to accept the change because I was really, I really wanted to see, I think that we need to make Connecticut a community that should be noticed that investors should be looking at Connecticut companies. And the only way we're going to do that is by creating the rising tide that lifts all boats, is to create this community among this two-hour stretch of highway that runs down from, you know, stores to Stanford, mm-hmm. um, and that we need to support these companies. We need to have a larger and more effective um, ecosystem. And I feel like CTNX should be a strong part of that. And I've been hearing also a lot of complaints about CTNX. Yeah. So, so getting the opportunity to judge the awards was great because first of all, um, I get to eat some crow, which, um, which I'm always happy to do. Uh, tastes delicious. Um, the, the. Did you say crow? Yeah. What the hell is that? Okay. I'm sorry. This is probably. <laughs> Men pro- of the Night's Watch. <laughs> <laughs> Did something just go right over my And eye? now his watch has ended. <laughs> my watch has ended. Uh, yes. That is a, that is a phrase some of us old folks use. It, it used to mean that if you had, you know, uh, you, you had to go. You said something wrong, and you got to admit it. You would eat crow. Is what uh, they would okay, say because okay. nobody wants to eat. Yeah, crow. yeah, that, that must be for the older people. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> I'm and, too young. And the Night's Watch. <laughs> yeah. And the Night's Watch. That's right. 
Um, for the watch, rest yeah. in yeah. peace, John Snow. <laughs> oh, so oh wait, wait, we, you know, yeah, we need to actually, we totally need a spoiler alert right there. Um, rest in peace, just bleep it everybody. Out. They all die in a fire. It's terrible. what is that for Game of Thrones <laughs> yeah, or something? Yeah. See, I don't even watch Game of Thrones. I know you watch Bachelorette. Yeah. You watching The Bachelor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get the feeling the audience sides with us, Eric. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, I was gonna, I was gonna say, and I was just checking my phone. Is because I actually applied to the EIA awards, um, two times ago, not this past one, but the previous one. And I was just looking at it and I didn't even get any feedback. <laughs> like, oh, they no didn't feedback. even send you feedback. Like, at all? like, yeah, cause I know, I know they changed, changed up the, the process the past like three times. Like it's, it's gone, um, I think if I'm right, it, it's gone through like a couple iterations where it's like, there's two or three cuts, mm-hmm. I think, to get to like the final one. So I don't know how many cuts there were uh, for you. For me, it was basically just you put in a basic application, I believe, and then uh, you go ahead and put in a presentation as well, a slideshow. Yeah, so I put in the presentation and the thing right at right at the beginning. Yep. And then I got I just got back that I didn't get accepted. <laughs> actually, actually, I found out I didn't get accepted because the other one people got you know told that they well, were accepted it's, it's possible that they went ahead and cut out all the feedback perhaps yeah. because maybe they maybe they recognize that which, which at the same there. time i mean i it is fine because i mean <clears throat> I, see and i guess here's here's my thing with the eia because i did go i've been to one eia award um and when i went there there was probably about four or five biomedical companies there that a couple of them had raised a lot of money and for these companies i mean any biotech company any you know uh, big pharma kind of company, you need millions of dollars. Like it's not like a $10,000 is going to do that much. Um, and so that was just, that was just my only, um, it didn't like, you know, the 10,000, the money didn't go to necessarily all of them, but the fact that they got to the, even to the pitch round mm-hmm. where, I mean, one of them, one of them had just talked about how he raised like two or three million dollars and he was pitching for $10,000, mm-hmm. which in the audience, it's, it's like, it's like, what the hell are you doing here? But yeah, so, I mean, it's not, so, I, I mean, I get it, but yeah. So they were obviously evolving. So let me tell you what I mentioned, which was that there were nine companies pitching. They would allow up to four of them to receive money. Mm-hmm. Um, the money they received was $10,000 per company. Plus they, you know, there were other people there like the angel investor form that contributed some additional funds. I think we gave out a total of on like $45,000. 44, I believe. 44. Yeah, okay. it was 44. Yeah. So. So, I, first of all, I thought that was impressive. Anytime yeah. you're doing out oh, 44,000 no, yeah. to four or five different companies, that's great. But, you know, what they told us as judges was, was, first of all, they said the pitch is in some ways, not entirely, but in some ways, the, the least important, mm-hmm. right? Because, and, and not, in, not because they've ju- prejudged the companies, but because that if one person has a bad idea, but can, sp- can really sell it really well. He's a good salesman, yeah. Yeah, it it doesn't Snake mean that they, it, it, what they tried to stress was that it's all about the, it's, there's different criteria, but the big one is impact. Yeah. Right? What is the impact that $10,000 is going to have on this company? And is it going, and is it going to take the company to another level? Is it going to allow them to continue to survive to get to the next phase? You know, what is the case? And, I actually found that to be a pretty admirable point. That to me is what CTNX should be about, which is how Absolutely. are we helping these, these <laughs> companies get to the next level? And when we gave away the money, I'll, I'll tell you, I think we all agreed on, on where, you know, which company should get it and that it would have impact on these companies. And yep. that was very important. I really liked it. Now, I think there's a question to be made as to, is this the best way to give away this money? Yeah. You know, is it, is it your, your judging panel, which changes from time to time in this pitch environment? 
you know, is that the best way to get these companies to come up here? And, and I do agree that it gets them, it does a couple things for CT next. It gets them more notoriety. Um, and it, and it allows these, these pitch events also gets these companies more, uh, out there more in the uh, community. But is it the best way to get that $10,000 across? I don't know about that. And I think a good discussion could be had one way or the other. I do think that the current version of CT Next is trying to do the right thing and they're living up more to their standard of what it originally was than, than I had been told about. Yeah. And I, I, I'm actually a, a big proponent of making sure the money has a big impact. Like it has to get them to the next level. You know what I'm saying? And so that's the money should be going to companies like that. But I will have to say is that you, you can win the EIA what three times? Yes, I believe it's three times, right? Yeah. And so one of the one of the things about winning it for three times, like almost like the psychological like effect of it, is that if I'm a company, I go in there and I need ten thousand dollars because using it for prototyping, perfect, right? You mm-hmm. need that money to prototype. You need money to do the first the first version or whatever. That's that's great for, the, uh, for usage of the money. But say you you keep on doing that, right? I mean. Winning three times, putting the time and effort to actually put the pitch together to, to, you know, do the application. I mean, it could take, you know, one day or somebody could be, you know, sweating over it for a week, whatever. But it's like, after some point, it's like, stop trying to get $10,000, get the 20, 30, 40, 50. Like you have to, I know some entrepreneurs are always going for the next award or looking for the next competition or the next grant they can go for or whatever. And it's just like, sometimes you have to just step up the game because really the 10,000, isn't going to do, you know, do something for you. But for small, smaller companies that just have an idea for prototype, you need, you need, I mean, the first 10,000 is the biggest, is the biggest hurdle for a lot of entrepreneurs. I think for, for Voda, I mean, obviously we see the impact that $10,000 has had. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable to see how, how much of an impact that had on, on Matt's startup and the progress he has in the months, uh, between when I saw him at CT Next, uh, down in Bridgeport and when I just saw the new version on your phone. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's, you, Again, if they're, if they're taking over that, if they, if CTNX wants to be the player in the helping that initial person get the, the first, you know, first product off the ground and everything like that, that's awesome. I think that one of the goals that we should have is to, um, is to see if we can bring someone from CTNX on the podcast. Yeah. No, definitely. I agree. So, I mean, I, 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 listen, I think at the end of the day, they are, it's a, it's an evolving project and I think they are trending in the right direction though, uh, regardless of what the feedback has been so far. Uh, what I've seen and what I've heard from you, um, it sounds like they're really moving forward. Yeah. And, and I think, uh, this is a, um, you know, uh, a good thing to, everybody's seeing it, right? They're seeing that people taking small steps and they're taking kind of one step at a time to get to, um, you know, the place they need to be. That's what you got to do instead of taking big leaps. So maybe, maybe in the words of Dr. Marvin, it's, it's all about baby steps. That go over everybody's head? No, no, Bob. Okay, okay, all right, good, good. No, whatever you guys know what you're talking about. Totally over my head. Oh, really? Yeah. What about Bob, Dr. Marvin, Baby Steps? Dr. Leo Marvin. Yeah, Dr. Leo Marvin. Are you kidding me? We're definitely having cultural issues here in the uh, recording room. That's like from the 80s. This is before I was born. That's that's, that's from the 90s. Is it really? Yeah, yeah. I was actually going to make a reference to Stripes earlier when he said Francis. Um, (laughs) Stripes is a good movie. I was going to say, I thought that might have gone over everything. (laughs) Okay, I think we're going to wrap this one up, guys. Any last comments before we... uh, let the audience go just just for purposes of conversation is there is there a danger in in having programs like eia and i know it's it's this will be unpopular among entrepreneurs but if we're orienting companies toward pitching for grants 
and maybe even kind of demonstrating a need where that money might have impact. Does that kind of get them off the course of ultimately building their company in such a way that they can attract investment, where the intent of the investor is obviously to get a return on what they invest? And here, you know, the criteria seem to be quite a bit different. Um, maybe it's it's a question of, of stage, and you can pivot towards, you know, looking for uh, investors and, and demonstrating that you're going to create a product that that's going to return a profit uh, for, for people who invest in your company, um, rather than kind of looking for, you know, a, a grant. I mean, obviously, grants are important and just crucial to getting companies off the stage. I think, you know, we see Vote as, as a good example of that. Um, but, I, you know, just some critique of the idea. I, I, I don't know what, what you guys think of that. Well, I, I mean, I've definitely talked to people around the state where they do not support the program. Um, and they, I think they come from the ideology is like, it's, that's my tax dollars, uh, being spent. So I don't want it to, I, I wouldn't spend my tax dollars in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of going back to what I said before is I think there is some, um, when you, when, when a company gets that first win, right? When they f- win that first grant and they get that $10,000, then they're like, Oh my God. Well, what's the other grant that we can go? Cause it's free money. It, like in, the, it, it is a voucher program. So you have to spend the money and get it back. And you, before you even win that, you have to tell them what you're spending it on and you can't even change that afterwards. I'm, from what I hear. Yeah. And so, um, I think there is, you get lured in to again, f- going after so many different grants and then you get away from actually making a, you know, a product that you can sell. And I think, and also sometimes where you need to have pressure with some grants, like you, you don't put, you don't get the pressure put on you, um, in the sense of, Oh, I need to make revenue or yeah, I just went out and got a bank loan and guess what? Yeah. I have to pay that. <laughs> you know, like right. we have, we have kind of pressure on to, to, um, succeed. So, but yes isn't it no. part of that, part of that pressure I think is, is, is what is important in the process. Yes, I mean, exactly, that, yeah. that pressure is a driver. But I, I would counter with the idea that uh, I think you're right when you say it's all about stage, right? If yes. the first company with an idea that is trying to get a prototype put together or is trying to get something else, that $10,000 can be invaluable uh, in getting them forward because they're not giving up equity for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it is It is essentially money that, you know, it's the best kind of money for a startup company, right? They're not having to give up too much and they can – and it allows them to move forward to a next step. However, if that becomes your focus, then you've got a problem. It's like feeding the ducks. It, it exactly is. And, and you do have, you do have the problem of people have issues. Um, you know, we talk about this all the time when advising companies. Focus on building your product and focus on getting your product to market and not as much on financing until you get to the point where you absolutely need to be financed for something. And if you're just chasing award after award, then you're probably not focusing on the right things. Um, that being said, you know, in a, in a state like Connecticut that doesn't, <clears throat> it has an entrepreneur community, but doesn't probably have as natural an entrepreneur ecosystem. And that is so economically down the poles, as it were, right? That, that, that is not performing well compared to other states nationwide in developing business, keeping business, developing jobs and keeping jobs. Supporting our startup ecosystem through the government seems like a natural step to take. Mm-hmm. How that, what form that support takes and how it's enacted is going to be perennially forever debated. Yeah. No, and, and I, I just think that, um, yeah, it, it's perfect for some companies, just absolutely perfect for some companies. And, um, I always wanted to hear in like some of the pitches that I, I saw was that for some of the companies, it was like, we need this money. 
And I almost want to hear be like, well, if I don't get that money, this is what I'm going to do. Like I like as an entrepreneur, yes, I want your money. Yes, I need that money to get the next step. But if I don't get it, I'm still moving forward. So it's it's like come you know, and then they come back for the next year where it'd be like, yeah, I accomplished it without even using your money. So it's, again, there's that pressure on top of it, and it's kind of thrown in your face too. But. I, I think to Dave's point, it is all about the, the stage you're in. Um, Ten thousand dollars when I was first getting started with any of my companies, that would have gone so far. I think it also comes down to sure, free money is appetizing to any entrepreneur, uh, but the most important thing is that you have, you have a product that solves a problem that people want. So if you start chasing after the free dollars well, and lose sight of, you know, what the main mission as an entrepreneur is, uh, and the point of your startup, well, yeah, you're going down a, a, a bad road. Um, and I think that will come and bite you in the ass, uh, very quickly. But in terms of $10,000 to any startup, I think, I think that's a great thing. Uh, but it's a balancing act. You know, once you get the money, don't go chasing fundraising until you really do need it. Absolutely, because that is a, a totally cumbersome and and twenty four seven job uh, fundraising. And you know, I'm fundraising now, and I'll tell you right now, I haven't put a lot of time uh, head down into focusing on product in quite some time. Luckily, I have some partners who are able to do that while I uh, while I pursue this. It's very difficult to do both. Yeah, and and ultimately, I I agree with with what you guys are saying. Like Dave said, every time you've got. Um, $44,000 going out to the entrepreneurial community in Connecticut. That's, that's generally a positive. I just thought I'd play libertarian's advocate for a second. <laughs> <laughs> that's excellent. And on James's pearls of wisdom, we're going to wrap it up right here. Want to thank everybody for listening and we'll talk to you next week. All right. Have a good weekend. You've just listened to the CT Startup Podcast. You can find us on iTunes or check out our webpage at ctstartup.com where you can find all our social media links. And please, please leave us your feedback. Special thanks to our production team, Kate Rupart, Dylan Gilliatt, and Kevin Dobis, as well as our equipment and marketing sponsor, Martha Kawana, LLP.